I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. No governor has gotten more incoming from President Trump than Michigan's Gretchen Whitmer. Trump has referred to her in a tweet as half Whitmer and said she was in over our head dealing with the coronavirus. He also instructed Vice President Pence not to call her. Perhaps all this is not surprising given that Whitmer is widely considered to be a leading candidate to be Joe Biden's vice presidential running mate. But just a few days ago, Whitmer, out of the blue, got a phone call from President Trump himself. We'll talk to the governor about that call and the alarming and disproportionate impact COVID-19 is having on minorities in her state. And we'll talk to House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff about the president's sacking of independent inspector generals, as well as what the intelligence community was warning about the pandemic threat on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, Whitmer, I think it's fair to say, is somebody who most of our listeners, including our hosts, probably hadn't heard of until the coronavirus uh, pandemic hit. But she is getting a lot of national attention, both for speaking out, criticizing what the White House is doing, and also the obvious fact that she is a very likely person for that shortlist to be the vice presidential pick, if for no other reason than she's the governor of Michigan, a state that's crucial to Democratic hopes of uh, ousting Donald Trump from the White House. While we may not have noticed her, and a lot of Americans hadn't, a lot of Democratic politicians who were paying attention have been noticing her, at least since she won that gubernatorial race in 2018. And in fact, Joe Biden, I think his last public rally before the pandemic struck and before politicians started ending ending their rallies was in Michigan with Governor Whitmer. He certainly has understood for quite some time now that uh, she could be important to his election chances and that she would make a uh, you know, an attractive um, running mate. I will also say that a uh, former guest on Skullduggery who knows something about the selection of vice presidential candidates, uh, Eric Holder, the former attorney general, has been talking about Whitmer for a long time. He campaigned for her in 2018. He thinks that she is a huge rising star. He said this to me before everyone else started talking about her. And that is significant because he's already started to have conversations with the Biden campaign about the vice presidential selection process. And he is a booster of Gretchen Whitmer. So this is serious. Right. And one of the issues uh, we're going to talk to her about is one that's getting a lot of attention right now. And that is the uh, hugely disproportionate impact that COVID-19 is having on African-Americans and other persons of color. It is a huge issue in uh, Michigan, a state where Detroit has a uh, large minority population. And I think that at the end of the day, Whitmer is going to be judged uh, to a great degree about how she handles this. Obviously, it's a national problem. It's a national issue. But Whitmer, as the governor of a frontline state, Michigan, that is third in terms of cases and deaths. That's pretty striking. 
and the fact that it's hitting African Americans and other minorities is something that uh, we're going to be talking to her about and a lot of people are going to be talking about. We've also I want to flag we've got Adam Schiff who's uh, out there uh, talking about the sacking of inspector generals uh, Michael Atkinson the uh, intelligence community IG who famously uh, alerted the House Intelligence Committee to Trump's uh, Ukraine shenanigans leading to his impeachment as well as the new sacking of the guy of Glenn Fine somebody uh uh, you and I know quite well, uh, dating to his days as an IG at Justice, now at Pentagon. Uh, he's been demoted as acting inspector general, and he will not be heading that pandemic response committee set up by Congress. It's an important issue, and um, we've got a lot to talk about. So uh, let's get on with it. We are now joined on the podcast by Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic governor of Michigan, who is on the front lines of this terrible scourge that the whole country is dealing with, responding to the needs of her state, but also uh, trying to get as much help out of Washington, uh, D.C. As, as she can, as are a lot of governors. Governor Whitmer, thanks for joining uh, Skullduggery. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I, I was looking at the numbers uh, first thing this morning. We're recording on Tuesday morning. And, uh, and then I just looked a few minutes ago. They are moving exponentially in Michigan. Uh, you've got uh, about 19,000 cases, 845 deaths. And uh, you um, have the grim distinction of being number three in the country in terms of cases and fatalities. What are you focused on the most right now in terms of trying to stop the spread of the disease, limit the death toll, what's working, and what do you still need from the federal government? Well, I think, you know, like governors across the country who have been focused on trying to mitigate the spread, you know, we're trying to keep people at home. Um, I issued the stay home, stay safe order on March 23rd. I think that, you know, there have been maps from the New York Times who've showed who's traveled the least, and it looks, you know, by and large that people in Michigan are following the stay home order. Despite that, we know that um, COVID had been spreading in Michigan for weeks before it was being detected, and we've never had enough testing to really have a handle on how prevalent it truly is. And that's why, even though we're, we're making our best efforts to uh, stem the mitigation, we see the numbers continue to rise. So we're working incredibly hard to you know, mitigate the spread, but also to bring in the PPE that we need. I'll tell you, a month and a half ago, I wouldn't have known what PPE stood for. And now it's all I think about is trying to make sure that my nurses and doctors on the front line, even the grocery store clerks who are putting food on the shelves, they should be able to have the kind of protective equipment that they need to, to do their job because they're so critical right now. They're the true superheroes in the story. And so these are the, the things that I think are, are challenges. We've seen people rising to the challenge, but uh, it's an ongoing day-to-day -day fight here to get what we need to protect people. Let me, let me just, uh, one quick follow-up, and then I'll let Mike uh, jump in. Governors have been issuing battle cries for more PPE, for ventilators, uh, for respirators, uh, for all of the medical equipment that is so important, uh, particularly for frontline um, healthcare workers, pleading with Washington to get this. So what is the state of play in terms of getting that equipment, getting those ventilators? Is there significant progress so, you know, we are, I think, in the position that every state is in. I shared it publicly. Maybe I was one of the first to do that. But, you know, we've been trying to contract with any company we can in order to get masks, the N95 masks, the gloves, the gowns that we so desperately need, starting to, you know, really make sure that we have an inventory of how many ventilators we have, uh, looking at modeling and determining how many we need and trying to fill that gap through any means possible. And that's, you know, one one leg of it, the stool, is getting as much as we can out of the national stockpile. We've gotten, you know, like every state, a fraction of what we what we really need. And so we've been supplementing that by trying to contract with anyone we can around the world and also get Michigan businesses to ramp up and start producing some of these desperately needed items. And so on all three of those fronts, we're working 24-7 trying to make sure that we pull as much into Michigan as we can. I've even reached out to states that 
don't quite have the COVID issue we have now to see if, if they might have ventilators we could use for the time being. And that, of course, we would return the favor when, when they were in need. So I think we're being aggressive. We're being creative. We're continuing to sound the alarms because every time we do, we get a little more help. And that's really important. Governor, you had uh, quite the dust up with the president uh, a week or so ago. He called you half Whitmer and uh, he told uh, the vice president, uh, don't call the woman in Michigan. Since then, what's been your interactions with the White House, with the vice president, with the president himself? Have you been in communication with them? Are they taking your calls and responding? Yeah, I mean, it is um, one of those things where, uh, you know, underneath the surface, there's been a lot of activity. So my State Emergency Operations Center has been working very closely with the Army Corps of Engineers, with FEMA. My chief operating officer, I think, and our, our region head of FEMA are on the phone six times a day um, and have been for weeks on end at this point. I've talked to the vice president a number of times. He's been, those have been very positive conversations. And even after the infamous comments, the president called me directly and we had a, a positive conversation. All that being said. What was that like when the president called you uh, after, ins- after publicly insulting you on Twitter? It was not a scheduled call, so it was a bit of a surprise, but a welcome one because I had asked for a phone call. Uh, it took a few days to get it for it to become a reality, but, you know, we've got to have an open line of communication. And I reiterated what I've said on, on the national news media a number of times, which is we are not one another's enemy. The enemy is COVID-19. It does not discriminate based on party line or state line. It is a threat to Americans everywhere, and we've all got to be on the same team here because American lives, Michigan lives are on the line here, and the enemy is not one another. Let's cut right to the chase. Do you believe that the president went after you because you are being widely talked about as a possible running mate with Joe Biden? You know what? I I have no idea what precipitated that. I do know that I had been pretty clear in my concern about the lack of a national policy. You know, patchwork of policies across the country, depending on who the governor is, means that COVID-19 could could go on longer in the United States than, than otherwise. My dad lives in Florida, or he's a snowbird. He's down there for the winter, has not come home yet. And I've watched with great concern the fact that Florida has not been as aggressive as we have been here in Michigan and in other states here in the Midwest, Republican and Democratic-led, by the way. And it's this patchwork approach that I, really concerns me, and I've been vocal about that. And I, I think that might have um, – people weren't real pleased to, to hear that. But I think it is a, a valid op- observation about some of the issues that we're confronting here. So w- regard to motivations, I can't speak to it. I don't know. All I know is – all I think about is PPE – All I think about is the nurse and the doctor who are wearing one mask for a whole shift. Think about the 845 Michiganders who've lost their battle with COVID-19, whose families can't even come together to mourn as we usually would because it's too unsafe to congregate. And that's all the energy I have is focused on, on getting my state through this horrible crisis. One of the things that you've been most critical of Uh, in terms of the federal government's response, is its inconsistent message. And it's interesting, this is something that we've heard from other people we've interviewed on this podcast. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut said the same thing. He said that was the single biggest problem. Help our uh, listeners understand what the consequences of inconsistent messaging is. Like, why is that, As I mean, it it sort of stands to reason that it would be a problem, but why is that the biggest problem? Well, you know, We know that with novel virus like this, for which there's no cure, there's no vaccine, it's incredibly contagious and it's deadly. You don't know how your body's going to react. You get two 30-year-olds in the same household, both of whom are healthy, no underlying conditions. One, it's like having a mild flu. The other, it's fatal. In this scenario, with too little PPE for our front line, the best tool we have is mitigation. One scientists observed if we could all freeze in place for 14 days, COVID-19 would come sputtering to a halt. And yet we know that the the thing that we can control is, is how much we're out and about. And so the stay home orders are really 
really important to give our hospital system an opportunity to give people the care they need by creating fewer people who need that care. It is a sacrifice, and we're asking people to do something drastic, even though it's not going to war, it's staying home to to protect your fellow Americans. And that consistent message is really important. And when there's a message that says, well, it's not that serious, or it doesn't impact every generation, or you know, this is this is a po- politics. It's not real. Those all undermine the seriousness with which we need to take this crisis. And I think that even the inconsistent messages from state to state based on who the governor is feeds into that question. And so people don't observe the kind of strict, you know, mitigation efforts that we know are really important because they're hearing so many different things from people in power that they just kind of question it all. And um, I think because of that inconsistency, that more people will get sick, will confront COVID-19 longer, which means our economy will struggle longer. And the worst part is that more lives will be lost because of it. Uh, Governor, I had a couple of questions. First, just one more beat on your phone call with the president. Uh, when he did call, did he refer at all to the uh, previous unpleasantness between the two of you or express any um, regret or apology for his previous remarks? No, nope, and neither did I. <laughs> I think we both just wanted to get it past. You just moved on. Fair enough. Um, do you have an understanding of why Michigan, how and why Michigan became a hotspot? Well, I think, you know, there are a lot of different factors that go into play. You know, right now, Michigan is one of only a few states that are releasing racial information about, you know, positive tests for, for COVID-19. And I think that's an important part of the conversation that we've got to have as a country, as a state, that there are inequities that have festered in our country for a long time. And um, I think that that's part of a contributing factor to what we're seeing on the ground. What, what is that racial breakdown that you've been um, uh, you've been seeing in terms of? You know, you know if you look at, um, I think, 17 percent of our population, I think, um, are identifies people of color. Forty one percent of the covid cases are people of, of color. And so it's a disproportionately hurting. And this is all preliminary data. It's too early to draw final conclusions. But the fact of the matter is it's concerning. And I think you see similar data coming out of Illinois and out of Louisiana. The fact of the matter is Detroit, like Chicago, by the way, and like New York, were designated places for bringing in suspected COVID patients. There are the international airports. There are a number of them across the country. Detroit is an international hub. We've got a lot of people called Detroit home and come to and from the city of Detroit. And we also have a population that is living below the Alice standards, which means that we've got a lot of people who are in poverty, who don't have access to health care, who don't have access to a job that gives them, you know, enough money to support a family and to to do all the things that, you know, we know help you avoid the worst kind of outcomes from COVID-19. And so I think that there are a lot of contributing factors here. I don't think anyone knows precisely why a certain community has more COVID cases than another. But I will say that it's important that people understand if you're taking a pill for any ongoing issue, that means you're more at risk from a terrible outcome from COVID-19. And I think that's something that everyone needs to really understand and be clear about it. We talk about comorbidities. No one knows what that means. If you are treating some sort of a condition by taking a pill every day, that means you're a little more susceptible to to the worst outcome from COVID-19. Governor, let me just ask you one question about something that's unique to your state, which is that you've got both Ford and GM based in Michigan, and they've been racing to set up new production lines uh, to uh, build these desperately needed ventilators, kind of an extraordinary redeployment of their mission. But it looks like they started too late, that the bulk of their machines won't be coming online until mid-May when the peak is going to happen later this month. What was the problem there? Was it that the president took too long to invoke the Defense Production Act? Was there more that you could have done to encourage the automotive companies to start making ventilators? What happened there? So I think that, you know, we missed a big chunk of time between when um, people in Washington, D.C. first started raising the alarms that COVID-19 was a real threat and 
that we were needed to take a lot of preparations. So a lot of time between when those flags first went up to when we really started to see the conversation in D.C. turn into the seriousness of the issue. You know, our big three are trying to produce as many face shields and masks as possible. They have been studying and trying to get into the ability to mass produce ventilators. But these are complex pieces of machinery that are in very short supply worldwide. And so it's not just a simple matter of changing a couple of things on the auto line. It's about redesigning and um, trying to do so in a way where you can have mass production. And so it's, it's incredibly complicated. The full force of the Defense Production Act had been invoked a little earlier and a little more sweepingly. We might be in a stronger position, but even even such producing the kind of ventilators that we need as a nation is is something that doesn't happen overnight, sadly. Governor, last uh, question. I have to go back to politics. Uh, as previously noted, the vice president, you're on the short list for the vice presidential pick. Have you been asked to provide any information to the Biden folks, uh, any background information as part of, of vetting to be his uh, vice presidential selection? And if you are asked, are you uh, interested in being on the ticket? Um, I've not been asked to provide anything. I've got you know, as I said, every ounce of energy that I have and my team has is going into the crisis that we're confronting. And so conversations about anything beyond that is not something that I put any energy into at this juncture. And um, it's certainly I didn't ask to be thrust into the national spotlight the way that <laughs> I have been. Um, it, it's flattering to even be considered and we'll see where it goes. But I, I haven't put a whole lot of thought into it at this point. Well, we appreciate you spending the time, and we are happy to do our small part to keep you part of the national spotlight. (laughs) So uh, thank you very much, and please uh, do your best for the people of Michigan. Thank you. Take care. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us Congressman Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So a lot going on. On Friday night, the president fired Michael Atkinson, the inspector general of the intelligence community. You promptly condemned that, along with many others. And then no sooner did you do so that the president on uh, Monday canned the prospective new head of the pandemic response committee, uh, Glenn Fine, who's been the acting IG at the Pentagon. At this point, beyond condemning the president's attack on inspectors general, is there anything uh, the Congress can do about it? Well, there's a lot that Congress can do. The challenge is, is there much that Congress can do if the Republican Party is willing to continue to be a cult of the president's personality and not stand up to him in any way? You would think that where there had been bipartisan support for a vigorous system of inspectors general, vigorous defense of whistleblowers, for example, that it wouldn't be president dependent, but apparently it is within the GOP. And so you see the same incredibly muted response or non-response to the bloodletting of these inspector generals that we've that's come to characterize the Republican Party. And so the, the question is, Can one party uh, hold the president to account uh, or conduct the oversight that's necessary? And we're going to do the very best we can. I think it certainly highlights the need for the select committee that the speaker wants to establish to make sure that if we can't have an inspector general overseeing the pandemic response accountability committee that uh, Glenn Fine was going to be charged with overseeing, then we're going to need Congress to play an even more vigorous role in making sure that this $500 billion fund for maintaining the industry workforce isn't used to gratify the president's friends and penalize the president's enemies in the way that the president, I'm sure, would like to use those funds. 
So Congress will need to step into the void. Uh, we're going to do the very best we can uh, on the Intel committee side. We are uh, overseeing now uh, looking into the firing of Atkinson, which looks like a purely retaliatory act, and the president admitted as much. We're looking into what investigations he may have been conducted uh, conducting uh, when he was uh, forced out uh, and the president circumvented the law requiring 30 days notice uh, by putting him immediately on administrative leave. Congressman, on, on that point, do you have any evidence or indication that the his dismissal was anything beyond his role in forwarding the whistleblower's complaint about Ukraine, that there were any other investigations he was doing that um, the administration may not have been happy about? Well, I, I think that we know there are at least two purposes behind the president's actions, and whether there's a third or not, we're going to try to determine the first, as you point out, is retaliation, which he's made it very clear. Uh, Atkinson was required to inform us that a whistleblower complaint was being withheld from us in violation of the law, and he did. And he had the support of all the other inspector generals uh, in that determination. But it was also, I think, designed to take out someone who was doing an independent job, such that if other whistleblowers came forward or other allegations of, of uh abuse or misconduct or criminality came forward, there wouldn't be someone of his stature in that position. Whether there's a third reason, that is, whether there's a specific ongoing investigation, we're going to try to determine. Did the acting director of national intelligence curtail any work that Atkinson was doing? They're required to inform Congress of that, but they've been required to inform us of other things that they're failing to inform us of. So the short answer is we don't know, but we're determined to find out. Chairman Schiff, I just want to pick up on something that you said at the outset, which is the challenge that Democrats in Congress face shoring up the inspectors general and kind of oversight more generally, the challenge that you face with Republicans uh, in Congress. And Isakoff and I have covered inspectors generals for more decades than we'd like to acknowledge. And in all that time, Chuck Grassley, the Republican senator from Iowa, has been among the most, if not the most staunch defender of inspectors general, the whistleblower system more generally. Do you think that Chuck Grassley is has become part of that cult of personality that you referred to? Have, have you spoken to him? I know he's on the Senate side, but is his lack of action here an indicator that the Republicans simply won't defy Trump on these issues at all? Well, I, I think that his statement in the wake of the firing of Atkinson shows about the farthest uh, any Republican is willing to go, which is... The, the statute requires an explanation for why an inspector general is fired, and we're going to need that explanation. But by the way, the president has handled this pandemic wonderfully. So that's the strongest statement that I've seen, and that tells you sort of the range of independence or lack of independence we see right now within the GOP and Congress. You can imagine what the hue and cry would be if Obama decided and declared that he would be the oversight of a $500 billion fund, Donald Trump literally said he will be the oversight. I will uh, oversee this. You can imagine uh, what a furor there would be if uh, there were the firing of inspector generals or retaliatory acts like this. Now, I, I get it that, you know, okay, this is the president of their party, but you would still, uh, I would hope, expect to see some devotion to the institutions and I just don't see it, and I've given up looking for it, frankly, uh, over three and a half years of hard experience. One quick follow-up, which is, I mean, as you, you mentioned that the statute requires some kind of articulation for why a uh, inspector general has been fired by the president, but it doesn't have to be fired for cause. I mean, a president can fire an inspector general pretty much at will. If the inspector generals are not going to be toothless, aren't you going to have to shore up the law so that they can't be fired as easily as as, uh, as they have been? I think we are. And indeed, I, I raised this issue um, upon uh, Atkinson's firing with my staff that we should consider adding language in the Intelligence Authorization Act protecting the ICIG from firing uh, without uh, a showing of cause. And here, here we have, you know, a, a very broad phenomenon of the Trump administration, and that is we are discovering that things that we thought were inviolable, inviolable norms turn out you can violate with impunity if one party is willing to go along with you. And so 
these norms are not sufficient to protect the public. And we're going to have to put in statute cause requirements when we would have expected that cause would be presumed, that you would presume that uh, a president would have to show cause. But I think we are going to have to strengthen these laws and protections because they're clearly not doing the trick with a president that has no moral compass. Uh, you mentioned that you haven't gotten any uh, accounting or explanation for why Atkinson was fired, and even though the law requires it. You also, correct me if I'm wrong, haven't gotten the worldwide threat assessment for 2020. Have you gotten any explanation as to why not and whether you're still going to get one? Well, you know, the irony, Michael, is, well, we've gotten no formal explanation for why Atkinson was fired. We did get a confession from the president from the White House podium. Uh, I don't know whether that qualifies uh, giving an explanation that's completely illegitimate, but it's not a mystery. In terms of uh, why we haven't gotten the worldwide threat assessment, you know, the answer is very plain. And we tried before the the pandemic uh, precluded meeting in person to commit the intelligence community to an open hearing without success because they're all terrified of saying something publicly at odds with the president's preferred narrative of things. Many in the IC feel that's why Dan Coats got pushed out uh, for saying things uh, during our last uh, worldwide threats uh, hearing that the president didn't want to hear. It's why the all-hands briefing that we had for the full House on foreign interference in the upcoming election was so different than the one we had in committee because the intelligence community is being politicized, it is being chilled, and we have seen increasingly concerning aspects of this now over the course of the last year, but now it has reached a point of great jeopardy for the country where we're in the middle of a pandemic and we cannot rely on getting the plain, unspoken, hard truths uh, if they contradict the president's preferred narrative. And that just is a really dangerous situation for the country. You've mentioned uh, you're investigating the Atkinson matter. You talked about having a hearing, you know, wanting to have a hearing on the worldwide threat assessment. But under the current circumstances, this is just a purely logistical question, can you even have public hearings anytime in the foreseeable future? You know, we are exploring. I think that we can and I think that we will, but they may take the form of a virtual hearing where uh, we will do essentially a Zoom hearing uh, where we'll have witnesses testify. People will be able to watch the hearing. Members will be able to ask questions. Uh, we're, we're trying to work our way through some of the uh, security issues. What, what's the first one you want to have on that? Well, uh, you know, we are exploring doing a hearing on foreign election interference, uh, and we're exploring doing that with some of the private sector uh, companies, because frankly, they may be a better source of information on this than the IC, if the IC isn't going to be willing to share with Congress the facts of what it's seeing, uh, because they're afraid uh, of losing their jobs the way acting director McGuire did. How about an Atkinson hearing? Call him as a witness. Yeah, uh, you know, the the challenge there, Michael, is that we can expect complete non-cooperation from the administration. And right. so uh, <clears throat> then you end up having to use compulsion and then you end up, you know, with the administration playing rope a dope with you in the courts. Well, Congressman, isn't another challenge, I think you were beginning to allude to it, is a potential security challenge if you're doing hearings involving the fired IG for the intelligence community. Can you do a, a virtual hearing in closed session? We know that Zoom, for example, has security issues. Can you use some kind of a secure system? How would you do a closed session virtually? At this point, I don't think that's going to be possible. So whatever hearings we do will have to be open session hearings. Now, there's a, you know, a lot of public value, obviously, in what we can do in the open. But uh, in terms of uh, dealing with either classified information or highly sensitive information that's not classified, I don't really see in the near future working out the technological risks associated with that. So I, I just don't think that's going to be practical. You uh, recently uh, introduced the bill for a 9-11 type commission to investigate uh, what was known about the virus and what the response was. Inevitably, this is going to be seen through a political lens. How do you prevent that and still have the kind of thorough accounting and investigation your, your bill calls for? 
I think the way you, you prevent that is uh, twofold. One, uh, you follow the model of the 9-11 Commission in, in terms of the composition of the commission. Uh, so it is designed to be and choose nonpartisan members of the commission. You have a start date after the election. So the start date of our legislation when the commission would begin work would not take place until early next year to try to take it out of the political realm. But uh, Michael, I think the most important thing, frankly, and, and I've been in discussion with some of the former 9-11 uh, commissioners, as well as Tim Romer, the author of the legislation that established the 9-11 commission. And one thing that's become very apparent in discussing their work uh, on that commission that made it so successful, that, that made it nonpartisan, and in fact, propelled the legislation to a successful uh, finish is the constituency of the 9-11 victims who were enormously important and powerful. And when witnesses were hesitant or uncooperative, the power and force of that group of 9-11 uh, victims' families overcame any opposition. And I think, frankly, here, you're likewise going to have a group come together representing those that are victims of the coronavirus and I think you're going to have a constituency within the healthcare field of people who demand answers and want independent commission uh, to look into uh, why uh, we were so ill-prepared for this, the costly uh, mistakes that were made uh, in the handling of this and the unnecessary loss of life, and how we can protect the country going forward. So I think that constituency much like uh, after 9-11, will compel the formation of an accountability commission like this and help see it through its work. So, Congressman, if you had to, at this point, kind of prioritize the failures to this point uh, in terms of the government's response to the pandemic, what you would want to look at, you know, just give us uh, three or four of the most important issues that need to be examined uh, in your view. Well, I think we need to examine the nation's preparedness to deal with a, a virus and the risk that it would come to the United States and how we would immediately test and trace and contain that threat. I think we'll need to look at why we did not have a, a testing capacity ramped up more quickly than we did, why we let the virus spread throughout the country without knowing where it was at any given point in time why we had nowhere near the protective gear and ventilators and other material in our stockpiles necessary to meet a pandemic threat. And of course, the dysfunction within the administration in dealing with this problem, the conflicting messaging to the public, uh, the weeks and weeks that went by where the president was telling the country they had nothing to worry about. This was an ordinary flu. It was all under control. It was all contained was not going to be a big deal. Uh, that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and you don't get that time back. So those are some of the issues I think to look into. But let me just ask you, other than the one that you just mentioned, which is clearly really only about the Trump administration, do those failures, are they limited to the Trump administration's uh, lack of, of preparation here? Or would you go back to previous administrations, to the Obama administration, for example, and ask some of those same kinds of, kinds of questions? Well, you know, I think the commission should take a broad look and uh, identify, you know, where the failures to prepare occurred. And, uh, you know, look, I, th I think the um, the reality is that the disbanding of the pandemic office uh, in the National Security and Council and White House that was established during the Obama administration by the Trump administration will be heavily studied in terms of its impact, that tripwire being lost. But, uh you know, I don't think there's any way to escape the conclusion that this is really a whole of government failure, that uh, given the severity of its impact on our country, if, for example, you know, we were to say that we would be the victim of a terrorist attack that would claim, and it's now well over 10,000 lives, and that would ravage our economy, you know, you would demand to know why the, the country didn't stop it. And uh, that is no less true here, but it, it, I think, is already indicative of the fact that this threat, which could do such grave damage to the country, didn't get the kind of resources that it deserved, given the, the magnitude of the danger. I mean, just one follow-up on that. 
because you mentioned uh, terrorism threats. And I guess the question is, did the intelligence community focus enough attention on the threat of, of pandemics and other health risks that could harm our national security? And by intelligence community, that would include the intelligence committees, including the House Intelligence Committee, which you chair. I mean, will you, will you look at that? Will you look at that? We're looking at that already. We are doing a deep dive in terms of our intelligence holdings to assess, you know, what did the intelligence community learn? Uh, how soon did they learn it? What were they aware of or concerned about in the years leading up to this? I will tell you that for the last two years, we have had language in our Intelligence Authorization Act requiring the intelligence community to study exactly this threat of pandemics. Uh, language that we included, it was authored by Ami Berra, and language that we passed in the House that was uh, in the bill that I authored. And because the Senate couldn't get an intel bill through, it didn't get to the president's desk until last year. And that study has not been produced yet. But we were certainly aware of the threat and calling on the intelligence community to report to us on it. But there is a lot more work to be done in terms of analyzing whether the IC had the resources devoted to this problem set, whether it was well enough integrated with public health authorities. There is a, you know, certainly a narrative out there that we are examining that the uh, intelligence community was flashing a red light. And I'm not prepared to reach any conclusions because we're just beginning our analysis, uh, you know, our after-the-fact analysis of the early intel reporting, but that is certainly, I think, going to be a core responsibility for our committee. I, I had a few questions along those lines. Uh, the Washington Post uh, reported the other day that the uh, U.S. intelligence community, as early as January 3rd, included, was calling attention to the seriousness of the coronavirus uh, threat from China in the president, and it was included in the president's daily brief. When were you first briefed by the intelligence community on the virus in China? We were getting written product from the intelligence uh, community continuously over time. So even before, even before the coronavirus, there would have been some reporting about the threat of pandemics. And then when this virus emerged in China, we would get written a product. We had our first hearing around the same time the Senate Intelligence Committee had their first hearing in early February. And at that hearing, while I can't go into details, there was still a great deal that we did not know that the intelligence community did not know about the virus. And so, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of our analysis because it's just beginning. But in terms of what the intel community knew and whether they had sufficient resources devoted to it, we don't know, I don't think, the timing of when this showed up in the president's daily brief. But of course, the intel reporting is only one facet of this because there were innumerable public streams of information coming from WHO, coming from China itself, very early on about this virus and concerns about a pandemic. So there is a tendency on our committee, and I think sometimes among those of us that work in the intel area, to view everything as either an intel success or an intel failure. But I, I think what we're going to see with this is it's a whole of government problem that sufficient resources were not devoted to this danger, given the magnitude of the danger. I, I do want to say, I just along those lines, obviously, there's been a lot of criticism of the Trump White House for not responding to some of the warnings it was getting from the intelligence community. But I looked on your website, I did a nexus search, and I didn't see you saying anything about the China threat until uh, pretty late in the game, into March. Nothing during the January, February timeframe. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, do you take some responsibility uh, as well for not uh, calling enough attention? You, you are wrong. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's why we asked the questions. Yes. Uh, when I was attending these uh, hearings, uh, the full house hearings in February, I was talking about my concern that the administration was not taking this seriously enough. They were not being proactive enough. The testing was not being done quickly enough and that we were losing precious time. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, and I have to say our committee had a, a certain prescience in supporting language in the intelligence authorization bills calling for studies of this before this virus existed. But in any event, this is not to suggest that 
any part of Congress uh, or the administration or our health agencies, the CDC, NIH or others, should escape uh, oversight and accountability. I really do believe this is a whole of government failure that we were not better prepared for this pandemic. But I, I will also say this, for weeks and weeks, it was clear to, I think, everyone in Congress, or not everyone, you still have the Matt Gates uh, wearing gas masks on the floor and not taken seriously, but, but almost all the members on both parties at a certain point understood the seriousness of this while the president was still talking down the threat and making happy talk about this and saying it was all going to go away, no, nothing to see here. And there's no escaping that accountability. How much of the problem was the lack of transparency by China and misinformation from China as well? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that there's certainly an element of this in China's lack of transparency and unwillingness to allow the U.S. to participate in uh, early assessments of the virus and providing samples of the virus and other things that have been publicly reported. We still don't have, I think, a, a real complete or accurate picture of what's going on in China right now. A part of that might be deliberate by the administration of President Xi. Part of it might be that they can't get people at the local level to be honest about the situation. So there's certainly going to be a responsibility, uh, and this will be part of the commission's work too, on China's part for not leveling with the rest of the world about this virus uh, and what it knew and when it knew it. But, you know, our job, uh, frankly, uh, uh, in the United States is to make sure that we are as well protected as we can, regardless of whether we get the cooperation of nations that are either our allies or our adversaries or somewhere in between. So I don't think that fobbing this all off on China is an adequate answer either. I've got two last quick questions. One is there's a little bit of a breaking political news that's happened while we've been recording this, which is Bernie Sanders. That was going to be a, my last one, so okay. go ahead. Which, <laughs> right. is, which is Bernie Sanders has uh, announced or told his campaign staff that he'll be suspending his presidential campaign. I just wonder what your reaction to that is, A, and B, what you think Vice President Biden needs to do to unite the Democratic Party behind him, given that it's been a pretty tough battle and, and it's an ideologically divided party? Uh, you know, it's hard for me to evaluate not seeing uh, Senator Sanders' announcement, whether suspension is a... Does, does it sound like he's ending his campaign? And I don't know whether this is a pandemic-related suspension or, or something more. Uh, so I'm going to reserve judgment until I, I get a chance to see it. But I, I do think that when the primary is over, there's going to need to be a very strong outreach effort by the Biden campaign towards the Sanders people, the Sanders uh, campaign towards uh, the Biden people. We need, we're going to need to come together because this president uh, and the way he's run the country and the way he's uh, now handling the response to the pandemic is not something that the country can endure beyond November. There is, I think, an existential threat to the health of our country, quite literally, and to the health of our democracy, also quite literally. So we're going to have to unite the party. What was your reaction to the vote in Wis uh, the voting in Wisconsin yesterday, and those images of people lining up in very few polling places because there are not enough polling workers wearing masks and socially distancing? Yeah, I was aghast at it, the terrible mishandling of that and the willingness to force voters to choose between their health and their franchise. I, I just think it's completely irresponsible. And I also think that we're going to have to insist that all 50 states come this fall make provision uh, where everyone can vote by mail should they choose to vote by mail. And you see uh, the president saying out in the open what they've been saying privately uh, for years, which is if more Americans vote, their party is a dinosaur that will disappear. President underscored that again today while criticizing voting by mail uh, for completely self-interested reasons when he votes by mail himself. He admitted uh, once again that politically, if people are more easily able to vote, Republicans lose because their views are not representative of the broader country. And that is not a reason to disenfranchise people. 
Uh, I, I think it is just so repugnant. Uh, it goes beyond my ability to express how repugnant that sentiment is. But it tells you just how calculating they are and how little devotion they have to our uh, institutions and the institution of voting that they're so crass in saying if more people vote, we lose. Therefore, we don't want people to vote. I got one last question on a completely different subject, something I was working on before we all got diverted by the virus. The president referred the other day to a in a tweet to a phone call he'd had with, quote, my friend Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that the U.S. intelligence community has concluded that the crown prince was likely responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Among the reports that I believe you were required to get and haven't gotten was one from the intel an unclassified version of the intelligence community assessment about what happened to jamal khashoggi do you ever expect to see that report are you doing anything to try and declassify the information that's already out there and your reaction to the president's uh, comments about mohammed bin salman well uh, we are trying to compel the community to produce the unclassified report that is called for. Um, and we may need to take the step, uh, the extraordinary step that was taken with respect to the 28 pages, uh, if you recall, that uh, were in the original classified 9-11 commission report that dealt with the issue of Saudi culpability on 9-11. That required legislation to allow uh, to be declassified. And it, it may require legislation here to require either an unclassified report or the declassification of the report in existence so that the public can uh, understand quite clearly uh, who was responsible for the murder of Khashoggi and how high it went in the Saudi regime. Uh, so that is something that we are discussing right now, but we want to make sure there is accountability in one form of accountability since this president is unwilling to apparently criticize his Saudi friends uh, in any way is by making public uh, what we do know about uh, that that heinous murder. All right. Well, Congressman, I want to thank you uh, for the time. I um, hope you um, stay safe out there in L.A. I assume you're from your home in L.A., correct? Uh, I'm uh, actually in D.C. Oh, you're in D.C.? Okay. Classified uh, briefings <laughs> and, and wanted to be here to form a quorum for the CARES Act, should that be necessary. How, how do you get classified briefings? Well, I can get them by using a classified line or by going into the SCIF, which I've had to do. And uh, there are other places I can go to get on a classified line. But, uh, but our committee is in a uniquely difficult position uh, to do telework because of the need to have access to classified information. So can you socially distance in a skiff? Skiffs always sound small to me. Um, you you can do your best. And indeed, when I have gone into the skiff uh, recently, I will uh, be behind my desk. I have one staff in one doorway, another staff in another doorway. And, uh, and if anybody uh, sneezes, we all run. <laughs> all right. Well, get it on video because that, is a, that a major could go viral, I think, on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, right. not, let's not talk about things going viral, Isakoff. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, thank you, and we appreciate thank, it. Thanks Hope for you your time, back. Chairman. Be well. Thanks to Governor of Michigan Gretchen Whitmer and House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.